Well, let's pray together. Oh Lord, I would pray that even in this hour, in this moment, in this time, that You would cause us to seek first the Kingdom of Heaven and His righteousness. Lord, I know the danger of, um, of people who obtain a measure of righteousness. It's a, it's a tendency to judge and to be hypocritical. And yet, Lord, You tell us to practice our righteousness in such a way that it's not seen by men, such a way that um, even if we give, our left hand doesn't know what our right hand is doing. And so I pray, Lord, as we even think about these people um, in this last um, closing section here of the book of Colossians, I pray that our, our hearts and our minds would, would desire to imitate them as they um, follow Christ. And yet, Lord, I pray as we seek You and we seek the kingdom, as we seek Your righteousness, that that might never express itself in an arrogance that hypocritically judges others, but always in a kind, soft humility that um, befits godliness. And so I pray for that even to press deep into our hearts this morning. Lord, I pray that You would bless the preaching of Your Word. I pray that the Word would not come back void as we know it doesn't. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at Rock Valley Bible Church, the end of every year, uh, we often gather together for a a picture. And this is a a church picture from 2007, and we print these up and we put them on the back table. We even put magnets on uh, the back of these pictures so that you might place them on your refrigerator to ever have a, a picture and a reminder to to pray for Rock Valley Bible Church, to see the people who are here. And, and uh, sometimes I know if you're like me, <clears throat> you can kind of study this picture and, and see people and kind of look at them. And you go by, you look at them a little bit more and just reminds you to think about these people and to, to pray for them. And it's a good thing. So if you don't have one in your refrigerator, I encourage you to take one as a reminder. Put it up someplace that just reminds you to pray for Rock Valley Bible Church. And in our text this morning here in Colossians chapter 4, as we've been going through Colossians and are nearing its end, I'm actually going to have one more sermon after this on the verse that I skip in my exposition. So you can kind of say, okay, what verse is Steve skipping? I'm going to preach that, which will allow us to preach the whole uh, in the future. Um, but our text this morning is really a picture of the church at Colossae. Oh, maybe not a picture with um, that we can see, but a picture that we can hear about, that we can imagine, and that we can see. We're going to hear about many different people. And, and Paul gives us insight into what's happening in the church at Colossae. And even what's happening with him in prison as he's sending these people to Colossae. He even greets, in this case, some people who are at Colossae or at a, a nearby town. And just tells them, gives them a, a picture of the church. And last week, we started this verse, this uh, section of Scripture in chapter 4, verse 7, in my exposition. And, and this part, this morning, is really part two of a sermon I preached last week. My message is entitled, Closing Announcements, because that's what this is. This is Paul's closing announcements as he finishes the book of Colossians. Now, he's done this before in other books of the Scripture, particularly like Romans 16. It's just packed with a lot of people and a lot of instructions, and that's what he's going to do this morning. Last week, we looked at five of the people mentioned here in this text. We looked at Tychicus in verses 7 and 8. We learned the lesson there of being a faithful servant. Paul gave him the duty of taking this letter and delivering it to Colossae. 
And as you trace this man throughout the New Testament, you find him always willing to do whatever it takes to help and aid and press on the kingdom of God. Then we went from there to Onesimus, who's found in verse 9. He was a runaway slave. The lesson we learned from him is that we need to be willing to do the right thing as he did. It was um, at the risk of death even that he returned to his slave owner. And uh, with the help of Paul in a letter that he wrote called Philemon, he turned himself in in some sense to this previous slave owner who he ran away from. And he said, you know, my life has changed. I've become a follower of Christ now and there's some things that I need to do to make things right. So I encourage you, exhort you to do the right things. Then we saw Aristarchus in verse 10. His lesson was that he taught us to be willing to suffer. He was a fellow prisoner with uh, the Apostle Paul. He was a, a fellow sufferer along with him. Remember one time in the, the mob of the crowds there in Ephesus, they'd even grabbed him out, ready to lynch him, possibly putting him to death. And Tychicus was ready to do that, ready to suffer with him, even right here being in prison with him. And then we looked at Mark there at the end of verse 10. Mark was encouraging. The lesson we learned from his life is never give up. Early in his ministry, he abandoned the Apostle Paul and uh, was, was off and you know, went on the missionary journey and quickly after that left from Paphos and went back home. And uh, when Barnabas wanted to take him on the next missionary journey, Paul said, no, I'm not taking him because he deserted me. But later in life, we find out in 2 Timothy that, that Mark, never giving up in his ministry, continued on as faithful eventually to be called by Paul, useful to him and to the ministry. <clears throat> and last week, we finished up our fifth point by looking at justice. And the lesson we learned there is that he trusted the Messiah. He was one of the circumcision, as it says there in verse 11, who was an encouragement to Paul. I think it was encouragement, especially here he was in, pro, in prison in Rome. And uh, as, he was, as he was there, there were many people in Rome who heard the gospel and flat out just rejected it. And in fact, we don't know of anybody who accepted it that first time, except here was justice in prison with Paul, a fellow worker who was from the circumcision, who, who did embrace the gospel of Christ. Well, this morning we're going to look at the next five people here. We're going to look at Epaphras and Luke and Demas and Nympha and Archippus. And again, like last time, we're just going to learn a lesson from each of these, each of these people. So let's pick it up with Epaphras. Our lesson here is to pray for others. Pray for others. Epaphras comes here in verses 12 and 13. Let me remind you again of what's said about him. Paul writes, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Now, Epaphras is mentioned only three times in Scripture. This is ancient history, trying to take those three times and trying to piece together his life and his lessons that he has for us. Twice here in Colossians and uh, once in Philemon, verse 23. And in Philemon, all we find is that he too is in prison. He's called a fellow prisoner with Paul. It may well be the case that um, Epaphras was in prison for preaching the gospel, just like Paul was and was in Rome uh, suffering for the same cause as Paul, as Paul did. When you trace through the, the story of the Bible, you can probably probably see the story of Epaphras originates back in, in, um, in Acts chapter 19, verse 10. He's not mentioned in this verse, but Paul describes in this verse how he was preaching in Ephesus for a period of two years. As a result of his preaching and teaching, many people went out to spread the good news of the gospel. In fact, to such an extent 
that we read that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And so, in other words, the, the gospel of priests in Ephesus went out to all of Asia, he said. And, and Paul didn't do that himself, but Paul taught these people who went out. And our best guess is that perhaps Epaphras was there. He was in Ephesus, heard the message of Paul, went back to Colossae, which is his hometown, right? He was one of your numbers, how verse 12 starts. Went back to his hometown and told those in Colossae of the grace of God in truth. And in fact, if you turn back to Colossians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, you can see Epaphras there. Paul is talking about this grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras. Sure, these people in Colossae learned it, I think, for the first time from Epaphras. He was an evangelist going out and preaching them. He said, our beloved fellow bondservant, who's a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he's informed us of your love in the Spirit. So at some point, Epaphras heard the message, probably in Ephesus, came to Colossae, preached to them, they embraced it, and now Epaphras is back with Paul in Rome in prison and telling Paul about everything that had taken place in Colossians, in Colossae. It's really one of the purposes of the letter is because Paul now was informed from Epaphras what was taking place and then wrote a letter in response to that. And in Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, we, we see some qualities that Paul speaks of Epaphras. He calls him one of your number. Of course, that means he was from Colossae. Second, he identifies him there as a bond slave of Jesus Christ. It means that, that Epaphras has enslaved himself to Christ. He has voluntarily submitted his will to the work of the heavenly Lord. In this way, he has a kindred spirit with Paul who often identified himself as a bondservant of Christ who had given himself fully to the service of his Lord. Now, these are good qualities of a man to have, right? One from among your number and a bondslave of Christ. But the one that stands most out when you think about Epaphras is his diligence in prayer. And that's my, really, my point of application here. Pray for others. Because Epaphras really teaches us that. Back a few weeks ago, I taught from Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. It says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. And that message, really, I sought to press home to you just a, a life and a heart that should be devoted to prayer. Paul calls all of us to be that. And in that message, really, I, I sought to focus and press several things home to you. If you want to be diligent in prayer, you've got to take time to pray. You've got to take efforts in your prayer. You've got to have a heart for prayer. You've got to be spiritually minded so that you would believe and trust in that your prayers to God are worthwhile and profitable. And you know what? Epaphras had all these things. He took time to pray. He continued to pray even when it was difficult in his life. He prayed for the most important things in life. And he prayed because of his love for these people. In fact, look at how Epaphras is described in his prayer life here. You see that he devoted time in his prayers. Paul says that Epaphras is always praying. Paul had picked up the, the spirit of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17. Pray always. That's what he was doing. Epaphras caught the example of Paul, who often tells those to whom he's writing that he was always praying for them. Like at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 2. We Give thanks to our God always for all of you making mention of our prayers. Because Paul was one who always prayed for the church. It was always on his heart and his mind. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Right? He's always offering prayer for those in Philippi. It's just his heart. 
But what's interesting and challenging here about Epaphras is that Epaphras isn't self-declaring himself to be one who prays always. Epaphras is one whose testimony to another person is that this man always prays. It's a great heart. Could other people say that of you? That you always pray? What is it? That, that allowed Paul to say that of Epaphras. Maybe Epaphras, I'm trying to think about ways that, that Paul might think that Epaphras was always praying. I mean, they had conversations, so Paul knew that he didn't pray exactly every, every time, all the time, but he had such a spirit of prayer about him. Maybe Epaphras is one who's really quick to say, hey, let's pray about that. Let's pray about that. If you're one who's like that, you might have a reputation, one who prays always. And maybe Paul noticed how the mind of Epaphras seemed always directed upon the Lord. Things that he said, always directed upon the Lord. Always speaking of His goodness and His kindness and praising Him. Maybe in that sense, he was praying all the time. So he enjoyed his constant communication with his Heavenly Father. Or maybe when they prayed, Paul and Epaphras prayed together. It almost seemed as if Epaphras was starting his prayer mid-sentence because he has been praying so much in his mind and his heart for these in class. We don't know, but we know that he devoted time to prayer. And that's what it takes to be devoted to yourself in prayer, to take a long time to pray. But also, he took great effort in his prayer. Look what it says here in um, verse 12. Laboring earnestly for you. Laboring earnestly. In the Greek text, it reads that Epaphras was agonizing in his prayer. He was agonizing in his prayer. It's what a prayer is. Prayer is work. It's difficult. It's tiresome. It is, to pull the Greek text over, it is agony to pray. Should you ever spend a significant time of prayer? You know what I'm talking about. Those of you who have sought to say, I'm going to spend a significant time. You know what it means to agonize in prayer. Prayer is hard work. And Paul knew this. In Romans chapter 15, verse 30, he's writing to the Roman believers. He said, Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Again, same word, agonizomai. Paul's calling the people of the church to strenuous work and labor in prayer. That's what he's talking about here. Here's what Epaphras did. He's what he's calling the church to do. Hard work in prayer. Now, lest you think that prayer is like a hard day work on the field or in the office where, you know, you're not enjoying yourself, think again. It's, this agonizomai is often used in terms of athletic contexts. You know, it might be more comparable. The hard work is like being on the treadmill or, or, um, playing on the basketball court or, or in the weight room, right? Tiring and exhausting, but, you enjoy the process in many ways. It's something you want to do. That's what prayer is about. Prayer is not a drudgery. It's a joy and a delight, but it is hard work. You know, I play soccer in, uh, on a team in the community and, um, in fact, played this past Friday night. And I can tell you, as an old man, I'm almost 40, and I was telling the guys on my soccer team, I think I can officially call myself an old man now. Um, and it's tiring and exhausting. In fact, sometimes I come off the field so exhausted <laughs> and so sucking wind, I tell my fellow teammates, don't get within a four-foot circumference of me because I'm sucking all of the oxygen out of the air and there's none left for you to have. It's tiring. It's exhausting. It wears you out. But that's what prayer is. Similar kind of thing. It might be exhausting and difficult, but communion with your heavenly Father is a joy. That's what Epaphras is doing. He was taking time, always praying. He was 
making effort in his prayer, laboring earnestly for you. It's also a characteristic of his, um, his praying here is that it was spiritually minded. This is something that really struck me here in this text. You can see what he was praying. He was praying that you, it's a purpose, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. You know, his concern for the Colossians wasn't primarily for their health wasn't primarily for their poverty or their jobs or the education of their children or their need for a new donkey or a good rain for the crops. As important as these things are and as worthwhile as they are to pray for, <clears throat> that wasn't Epaphras' prayer. Rather, his prayer was for their spiritual well-being. He wanted them to stand perfect and fully assured. It's a great prayer. In fact, it really summarizes what Paul's ministry is about, to stand perfect. Look back in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Paul's describing his, his method and his goal of ministry. He says, And we proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. Right Here's the, here's the method of ministry. Right? Proclaiming Jesus, not proclaiming doctrines, but proclaiming a person. Jesus Christ came to earth, suffered, died, resurrected for our sins. Proclaim Him. We teach Him. We talk with all wisdom, admonishing everyone so that, here's the purpose, we might present every man complete in Christ. So it ought to be the desire and the goal of every pastor is to present people in the congregation complete in Christ. Now, the way we get there isn't by being perfect, obtaining some perfect standard of righteousness. Rather, we get there by trusting in Jesus. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. It's in Jesus that you've been made complete. It's not in all the things and the rituals of everything you do. It's in Christ that you stand complete. And for this purpose, Paul even said back in chapter 1, verse 29, that he was laboring. He was striving according to his power, which mightily works within him. He's saying, my goal is to so preach and so admonish Christ, teach, teach Him and so admonish others and teach others that they would stand complete in Christ. Someday. So trusting completely in Him. And Paul says, for this purpose, I am laboring. There it is. Agonizomai again. I am working hard, striving. Here's striving. He's working hard for that purpose. <laughs> and here is Epaphras, off in Rome, far from Colossae, having the same heart, desiring to present the people in Colossae complete in Christ. He can't agonize and toil with them, but he can do the next best thing. He can agonize and toil in prayers apart from them. In fact, it might be the best thing to labor and toil and agonize. It's a pastor's heart. And indeed, Epaphras prays this way because he was in fact a pastor who had a great heart for his people. He was there. He brought the gospel to them. They grew and flourished in the Lord. Great things taking place. And that's who Epaphras was. He's the one that spiritually nourished those people, but now he's gone from them. But he had a heart for them. In fact, Paul even saw that heart. He says in verse 13, I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea. Now, Laodicea and Hierapolis. Laodicea and Hierapolis are like sister cities to Colossae, about 10 miles to the, to the west, just down the river, the Lycus Valley. Um, I think it was Laodicea that was on the river, and then about uh, six miles north of that was Hierapolis. Uh, Laodicea was a prominent city of great wealth. Hierapolis was filled with lots of, um, it's like Colorado Springs, lots of hot tubs, you know, naturally forming hot tubs. It became to be like a resort town. And um, 
Epaphras then probably, when he preached the gospel of Colossae, probably went on to these sister cities just 10 miles away and preached to both these places and saw churches raised up. And he had a great heart for these people. And his heart is what caused him to pray so hard. And do you want to pray like Epaphras? Then have a heart for other people. You ever notice if your child gets sick, how easy it is to pray for your child? Why? Because you have a heart for your child. If you have a heart for people, it's going to flesh itself out in prayers to God for their benefit. And I, I just give a testimony as a pastor. There are circumstances that take place in your lives that cause me to have, um, to have a constant praying for you and your needs. I know of um, lots of different circumstances. Just even as I look out among you and thought about it, I think about people with job situations. I can see some people in this congregation who have difficulties in the job and... Um, Changing jobs, without a job, difficulty at job. And my heart's praying for you. I think about people's situation of problems, difficulties with children. And I'm praying for you. Just, I care for you and I can't get the children off my mind. It might be a situation, right, regarding your marriage. And I'm praying for you. It might be something regarding, say, your role in this church. And I'm praying for you. And that's a pastor's heart. That's a, that's a heart that prays all the time, that labors earnestly because of a, of a heart's desire and affection for people. It's what, it's what Epaphras had here in verse 13, a, a deep concern. And a deep concern for these people that they would stand perfect and be fully assured in the will of God. I think that hits really the whole context of Colossians. Is that these people might not be pulled away by all this false teaching about... But people would come in and say, yeah, Jesus is good in your Christian life, but you need to eat certain foods, or you need to celebrate certain days, or you need to whip your body into submission, or you need to worship the angels, or have some kind of special spiritual experience and vision, or you need to keep away from certain things that can defile you. And Epaphras saying, no, no, I pray and I hope. And God make them stand perfect. And fully assured that they might not say, hmm, and catch an ear and say, that's something that sounds really good. That was the heart of Epaphras, praying for others. And I just take that, bring that to you. It is an admonition of Scripture. Devote yourselves to prayer like Epaphras did. Well, let's go on to our next person. Actually, this is point number seven in my two-part outline, or point number two today. Luke. The beloved physician sends you his greetings. The lesson we learned from Luke is this. Serve with your skills. Serve with your skills. Now, we know much about Luke. I mean, after all, he wrote the gospel that bears his name, the gospel of Luke. He also wrote Acts. Acts of the Apostles or Acts of the Holy Spirit, however you want to call that. And here's something very interesting. If you would total up the number of words pages, whatever, that uh, Luke wrote. He wrote about 26% of the New Testament that we have today. And if you would take the Apostle Paul and add up all the words and pages that he did, assuming that he he didn't write Hebrews, Paul wrote 25% of the New Testament. So in other words, Luke wrote more of the New Testament than the Apostle Paul did. He was an influential man. So we, we think that we know a lot about Luke, but for as important as he is, he's mentioned only three times by name in the Scripture. Here in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, he's called the beloved physician. In Philemon, verse 24, he's simply sending his greetings, identified there as a fellow worker. 
And the final place is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, in which Paul writes, Only Luke is with me. You know everything there is to know about Luke in some sense. However, we do know from Acts that he's a frequent traveling companion with the Apostle Paul. We, we know this by the way Acts is written. Much of the book is written in the third person. You know, the third person is, he went there, they went there, they did this, they did this. But there are times when, when it goes from third person and kind of slips into first person. Like, for instance, Acts chapter 16, verse 10. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Luke placed himself in the story. He picks up in the story midway through the second missionary journey. Seemingly didn't return home with Paul. And then picks up somewhere in the third missionary journey. And then he traveled with Paul to Rome and then with Paul, um, with Paul to Jerusalem and then with Paul back out to Rome. Um, so it is difficult when you look at the pronouns in Acts. It's difficult sometimes to know exactly where Luke starts and where he leaves off because never mentions him. And, and I stayed behind in this place or I went here. It just kind of, all of a sudden it goes from we to they and sometimes just kind of right in the middle. In fact, there's an interesting thing in Acts chapter 20. It says that Paul decided to return to Macedonia with some men who had gathered and then were waiting for us at Troas. So it's kind of like Luke just kind of joined in. You find, Figure out where was it that he joined in. It's pretty difficult. It's a little bit like um, the story in Narnia. You remember when the four Pevensey children came to the home of Mr. and Mr. Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. All four of them, Susan and Edmund and and Peter and Lucy, were all there, hearing about Aslan for the very first time. You remember that scene, right? They're in Mr. and Mrs. Beaver's house and they start talking about Aslan and they tell the story when he bears his teeth. Winter meets its death. And when he shakes its mane, we shall have spring again. And then they told him about how tomorrow they'd meet Aslan at the stone table. And they told him about the prophecy of the, the four thrones at Care Paravel. And then suddenly they remember, where's Edmund? And they start trying to retrace. Now, did he hear about the stone table or did he not? And I know several times I've looked at C.S. Lewis's book and gone back through and, okay, he's here and where he just kind of slips off the scene. Well, that's what Luke did. He was there sometimes. It kind of slips off the scene. It goes from we to us to we to us. And we're not actually sure. But we know some things that he experienced in his journeys and traveling with Paul. Predominantly, he was with Paul oftentimes. And uh, he preached with Paul. And he was supporting him. And in so doing, the lesson I've pulled out from the life of Luke is, is really pretty simple. I just say this. Serve with your skills. Serve with your skills. Luke was a physician with some medical expertise. And it may be that uh, his medical expertise allowed him to hook up with the Apostle Paul to begin with. During Paul's second missionary journey in Acts chapter 16, we see him traveling through the regions of Galatia. And then when you read the book of Galatians, you see that he had some kind of um, illness. He said in Galatians 4.13, You know it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. He called it a bodily condition which may have been loathsome to some people. Some people say maybe it's something with his eye. Uh, maybe it's a disfigurement of the face. You know, maybe it broke out in some ugly facial acne. I don't know what it was. But something that even he said that he was disfigured in the face somehow or loathsome to people. We don't know exactly what it was. But when we read through Acts, you find Luke pretty soon joining him on his missionary journey. And it could be that Luke was then helpful to Paul, ministering to him as a physician. 
And it may well be that uh, Luke became his own personal doctor to really help him. It's not an easy thing in those days to travel as he did. And especially even in prison, right, where uh, diseases fester in the cold, dark prisons. And, and Luke may have been there just loving the Apostle Paul and really being alongside of him and ministering to him, helping his health, nursing that along. But these aren't the only skills that Luke utilized. I suspect being a physician, he was a bright man with some research abilities. Um, in fact, he, he mentioned in uh, the beginning of the, the um, Gospel of Luke, here's how he starts it. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, and just as they were handed down to us by those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order. Oh, most excellent Theophilus. Here's a, you get a picture of a detailed man. A man who's into research and into study what's taking place. And he wants to write it down exactly as it happened. I think that's another skill that he had. And, and you know, if you read through in the Greek text, you know, Luke's writings is more difficult than Matthew's writings or Mark's writings or John's writings. In fact, some of the most difficult Greek um, in terms of vocabulary and technical nature, is Acts 27. Lots of technical nautical terms that Luke just knew about. Lots of new vocabulary. It's a difficult chapter really to, to trudge through. But he used his skills and ability to write more than a quarter of the New Testament. And so we see Luke just using his skills for ministry. Right? He was serving with his skills as a physician, as a researcher, as a writer. And I just simply encourage you to do that as well. You hear at Rock Valley Bible Church, Peter tells us to do that. 1 Peter chapter 4, 10 and 11. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Peter said, whoever speaks is to do so as speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Serve with your skills. And I know this has taken place at Rock Valley Bible Church. I've seen people serve with their skills. I know of several physicians in our body who've helped and served people with their medical expertise. I know a financial planner who's helped other people with financial management issues. I know of some handymen who've helped other people in their homes. Something breaks and they go and they help them. I know some people have abilities in the kitchen. Some ladies especially really sought to take along some younger women, teach them some things about the kitchen. I know some men who know some things about cars and have really helped others with car problems. Really helped them out a lot. I know people with musical abilities. who's helped others sing or play their instruments better. I know some with athletic abilities who have helped children foster their sport better. I know of those with computer skills who have gone to help others who have had computer problems. How many have had computer problems? My daughter might say, a Mac doesn't crash, Dad. Right? <laughs> I know of those with writing skills who have helped in writing literature for Rock Valley Bible Church. I know of those with business skills helping other men in their business. And so I'd encourage you, just as you have skills and abilities, use them in serving other people. It's very down-to-earth, rubber-meets-the-road kind of ministry. It's how the body works, each part performing its proper function. That's Luke. Let's move to Demas. 
His lesson is clear, though it's ugly. His lesson is this. Don't love this world. Demas occurs three times in the Scripture. His name occurs every time in the same context that Luke's does. Luke's a stellar example, and Demas then eventually became a, a bad example. First time he shows up, Demas does here in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. It just says, Demas. You pull in the context and you can kind of say, well, he sends you his greetings. Maybe Paul had a, had a sense of being abrupt and swift about Demas of his future. I'm not sure. It's reading a lot into that text, but that's what it says. Demas sends you his greetings. In Philemon verse 24, we see Demas being called a fellow worker. Now, we don't know everything of how Demas worked because we don't have enough data about him, but we do know that that somehow in some way he worked right alongside the Apostle Paul in his ministry, maybe delivering letters as Tychicus had done. Maybe it was in praying as Epaphras had done. Maybe it was in serving Paul physically as Luke had done. But somehow he is right alongside the Apostle Paul, laboring right along with him. You'd see him and say, he is a stellar Christian. And then what took place? Sad. His labor was short-lived. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, we see that Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. It's a sad verse. Paul had a fellow worker who abandoned him. In his hour of greatest need, Paul was left high and dry. And the reason is really simple, because he loved this present world. Now, we don't have enough data to say what it is exactly that he loved in this present world. Maybe it was the lust of the flesh that drove him to leave Paul alone in prison. Prison places weren't the most sanitary. Cold, dark places. Smelly places. And to be with Paul may have meant some discomfort to his body. So it may have been the lust of the flesh that pulled him away. It may have been the lust of the eyes that caused him to desert Paul. Right? There may have been some monetary losses that he experienced as a result of associating with Paul in prison. Say his reputation, perhaps, among non-Christians. Maybe his time away from his work. His eyes wanted more. Maybe rather than being with Paul, Demas wanted a well-paying job that would allow his eyes to be satisfied with all his possessions. Maybe it was the boastful pride of life that caused Demas to desert. He simply couldn't bring himself to associate with a man in prison. Earlier in 2 Timothy, Paul warned Timothy, he said, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner. So, So there is some sense where Paul's in prison, Timothy... His, his young son in the face could have, faith could have been ashamed of that. And maybe Demas was ashamed. It may have been. Maybe Demas was just scared for his life. Maybe he wanted to preserve his life. Seeing what Paul was going to experience, he's going to be beheaded in a few years. And Demas says, I want to live. I want this world rather than a world to come. We don't know. The details behind Paul's description here, they love the present world. We can make guesses. John Bunyan made a guess in his great allegory, Pilgrim's Progress. He had a character named Demas. Christian hopeful were walking along the way and they met Demas standing gentleman-like beside the silver mine. And repeatedly, he sought to persuade these two to come in. Come in. In fact, he said, here's a silver mine and some digging in it for treasure. If you will, come with a little pains you may richly provide for yourselves. Christian hopeful rebuked him, refused to go in the mine. He said, oh, but will you not come over and see? They refused and rebuked him again. And and Demas, again, was claiming that he was part of their fraternity. 
And then finally, Christian said this, I know you. Gehazi was your great-grandfather, and Judas, your father, you have trod their steps. So John Bunyan was interpreting the life of Demas as a life swayed by greed to love this world. Well, let's press on. We need to hurry through these next several ones. Other than Demas. I just say, don't, before we get off of Demas, just don't love the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. But the world is passing away in its lusts. It's the one who does the will of God who abides forever. And place your minds on eternity, dear people. All right, we mentioned our prayer meeting this morning. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Put yourself there and it puts your life, whatever, 30, 40 years, 10 years, 2 months, whatever's left of it in perspective. Well, let's go to our next lesson here from Nympha. Serve with your resources. Serve with your resources. Now, that's different than your notes. It might mess some of you up, okay? But serve with your resources is what I've come up with. I think it's a little better. Verse 15, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha with the church that's in her house. It's the only verse in all the Bible where Nympha's name is mentioned. Now, some of your texts, like the text that Jake read for us this morning in the King James, New King James Version, reads Nymphus in the church that's in her house. The issue comes, we've got two different texts. Some say Nympha and some say Nymphus. Nymphus is a man's name, Nympha is a woman's name, and just difficult to know which one. But there's no sense arguing today. The point is still the same. Whether Nympha or Nymphus, this person hosted a church in their home. It's difficult to know exactly where this is. You start looking down here in this only verse, the church that's in her house or in his house, it almost seems like it's in Colossae. But it might be Laodicea, or it might be a home fellowship group like our flocks there in Colossae. We don't don't exactly know. But we do know that she hosted many people on a frequent basis. In fact, Christian meetings were in homes, early part of the church. They had no time to build specific church buildings or to rent you know, schools. Maybe they rented some public buildings. I'm not exactly sure. We don't have any data on that. But mostly they just met in homes. Um, In Acts chapter 12, verse 12, we hear of a prayer gathering where many gathered in John Mark's mother's home. Aquila and Priscilla hosted churches in their various homes. When they lived in Ephesus, a church met in their home. They lived in Rome, a church met in their home. Philemon also. We'll find out in a few weeks when we get to the book of Philemon that uh, he had a church in his house as well. Now, the usage of these homes certainly depend upon the size of the homes and upon the size of the church. Some were large and could accommodate lots of people. Some were small and could only accommodate a few people. If the church was small, they'd be fine. If the church grew, they'd have to find maybe other place, maybe multiple places. We're not exactly sure. There's there's lots of lots of ambiguity here, but we do have a point here: is that Nympha served with her resources. And I just encourage you: serve with your resources. Nympha had a house big enough for the church to use, and so she offered use of it to the church. As one who has people in our home often, I know that's not always the most convenient thing. I mean, if you host people in your home, it's not easy. Carpets get muddy, and uh, floors get scratched, and food gets spilled, and walls get bumped, and furniture gets abused, and doorknobs break, and toilets get clogged or broken. They've been broken at our house. They've been clogged at the Iversons' house. 
Bathrooms are dirtied. Closets are inspected. You just never know. We find food downstairs sometimes. Despite saying no food downstairs at our house. But you know, if you have a heart for it, you you overcome all these things because you're using resources for the kingdom of God. I know this is Tim Iverson's perspective. I I appreciate his heart willing to serve others. In fact, um, he knows the difficulties that we have, but he and Wendy are are willing to pay the price. I remember um, one time there being in the the Iverson house and uh, saw some juice spill on the carpet. Tim was there. I was there. A child was there. Bloop! And Tim said, flock casualty. No big deal. Went and got some napkins and kind of soaked it up, fixed it up. Tim's using his resources. And if you're going to use your resources, you know, things are going to get banged up. and They're going to get dirtied and they're going to have difficulty. It's just the nature of using it. And I'm sure that Nympha experienced those type of things. You can experience expenses as well. You can have people at your house who might mean buying some extra food. It might mean heating or cooling costs that are going to rise. Might mean you need to fix some broken things. You might need time and effort before people come over. There's some cleaning that needs to be done, some vacuuming, some straightening up, some tidying up. And afterwards, it takes some cleaning. I mean, this is our ritual every Sunday night after we have flocks. We just we clean everything and then we finish our day. There are difficulties in opening your house for frequent visits. But if you use your resources and you want to do that, it's a, it's a labor of love and it's not hard for us in one sense. And I just say, you know, as the resource, I want to expand this not necessarily to houses and homes because maybe your home isn't conducive to that, but I just try to push this application, expand it to other things. Nympha had a house that was sufficient to have the people of the church in. Maybe you have a car that you want to, someone has a, a need for a car for some reason, you just want to lend them your car. If you've got two cars and someone has none, why not just lend your car to them? But you know what? Bad things might happen to cars that you lend away. I mean, I remember this fall, Jake's parents came out from a visit from California. And um, they were out here thinking about renting a car, and I'm tiling up the numbers and just saying, no, you just borrow our car for the week while they're out here. So we had an extra one. We kind of limp along with one car. We can do that fine. And um, I'm not sure exactly the details of all the the trips, but we gave them our our minivan. And on Friday night when uh, his parents were here, Jake was off with them, and they visited California, and Jake's driving our car. Chicago. <laughs> that would be a long drive. That would put some wear and tear on our car. <laughs> driving into Chicago, and on the expressway, hit from behind with a drunk driver. Damaged the bumper, dented the back hatch. And uh, I remember it was about 10.30 at night, I received a call from Jake. Steve, Steve, I, I got in an accident. Is there, is there anything I should know? So, you know, I'm thinking, oh, great. Um, I said, well, you know, there's insurance cards there in the glove compartment. I want you to take those out and use those and um, I want you to call the police, make sure the police come. There's a police report so the police should get people's names and everything like that. And then so I, I think, you know, he went to do those things. And later he called back to say how, how everything was. And, and, and just in the process of things, he was thinking to himself, boy, it's, it's a good thing that he was driving a bigger car rather than his smaller car, which may have spun around and stuff. And so he calls back and says, hey, everything's fine. But, you, you know, I sure am glad that I was driving your car and not mine. <laughs> it's one of those statements I'll never forget. <laughs> 
I know his heart what he meant. He just said, hey, we're going to be safer in this bigger car, and I'm, I'm glad for that. But it's still funny. But you know what? Those kind of things happen. We've lent another car of ours away a couple of years ago, I remember, and you know, someone took it into, Cal- into Chicago, not California, took it to Chicago, got it valet parked in this restaurant someplace, and uh, when she came out of this restaurant, she saw that it has a big dent in the back fender. No, 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 nothing. And we just drove around with a car with a dent in the back fender the rest of the life of that car. So what? We could serve somebody and we used our resources. And sometimes it works out for the good. This accident with, with Jake, you know, the insurance company totally took everything. We had some scratches on our, on our back hatch, but it was nothing that we were really willing to pay for. And, and just kind of with this dent in the back hatch that was put there, it's just not very big. It was just little. They repainted the whole thing for us and now it looks better than it ever was before. Put a new bumper on it. It's like brand new. Thanks, Jake. (laughs) But you know what? If you have resources, use them and expect them to have wear and tear. Who's are they? Are they yours or are they God's? Randy Alcorn said it well. He said, many years ago, I loaned my new portable, my new portable stereo to our church's high school group. It came back beat up. And I admit it bothered me. But the Lord convicted me, reminding me it wasn't my stereo. It was His and it had been used to help young, reach young people for Christ. Who was I to complain about what was God's? So I just exhort you, use your resources, right? If you have a big house, have people over to your house. If you have an extra car, loan it out to those who need. If you have a chainsaw, give it to someone who's a tree that needs to get cut down. If you have a rototiller, boy, use that thing to its max during the spring when gardens need to be tilled. If your children not grow their bicycles, give them away. If you don't need some furniture, give it away. Just whatever you have. It's God's. You're stewards of it. Use it to serve people. That's what Nympha did. And I know it's hard, and I think that's why Paul took some time out here in verse 15 to especially commend her or him because of the difficulties it caused. Well, I'm, I'm way out of time, but we're going to look here at, verse, at uh, my tenth point. Archippus, verse 17, is all we know of Archippus. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry that you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. He's mentioned twice in Scripture, once here in Colossians 4.14, once in Philemon, verse 2, where he simply identified us our fellow soldier. That's all we know about him. So again, right, we're placed in a difficult circumstance, right, trying to find out about his life. He's a fellow soldier. It means he probably was fighting hard as a soldier would for the gospel of Christ. Right? Not with loud, crashing swords, as to him says, but with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. And that's what Archippus was doing, fighting for the gospel of Christ. We don't have any idea what ministry. Maybe he was pastoring a church. Maybe he was a missionary waiting to be sent out. Maybe he was ministering among the poor. We don't know, but... His only admonition that Paul received was to fulfill it, finish it, complete it, bring to an end, do your work heartily for the Lord. And I I would just take this upon you. Whatever ministry you've received from the Lord, finish it, complete it, fulfill it. One of the Bonar brothers, Horatio Bonar maybe, Andrew Bonar wrote, Go labor on, spend and be spent. Give your all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Fulfill your ministry. One last comment on verse 18, and then I wrap things up today. Paul's closing. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. 
this point, Paul takes the pen out of the hand of his secretary who is writing for him, and he writes with his own handwriting, demonstrating that this letter is authentic. He closes with the most important things for himself and for the most important things for those in Colossae. Remember my imprisonment. That was the most important thing for himself. Probably means this. Probably pray for me in my imprisonment. We saw back in chapter 4, it's not even pray that I'd be released, but pray for me, right? That an open door for the Word might come to me. That I might speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I've been imprisoned. That I, I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. I'm just letting it be there. Letting His imprisonment. Pray for me in my imprisonment that I'd be bold with the Gospel. And then he leaves off the most important things for those in Colossae. God's grace. Apart from the grace of God, we're sunk, quite frankly. And Paul's saying, may His grace be with you. Oh, may His grace come in full measure to see things that He has accomplished in our lives. Well, may we pray for others like Epaphras did. May we serve with our skills like Luke did. May we not love the world like Demas did. May we serve with our resources like Nympha did. And may we fulfill our ministries like Archippus did. Let's just entrust this to the Lord. Lord, I would pray for these admonitions. I thank You for the examples of Scripture which are written for our instruction. And would pray that You would use them, Lord, for Your glory. I pray that You would foster within us a, a righteousness that seeks You above all else. And that labors earnestly in praying, labors earnestly in our ministries, is willing to give of our things and our possessions for the furtherance of the cause of Christ. Lord, that You would use this church in Your time and Your way to cause us to be a light and a beacon to a, a world that doesn't know You, that needs to know You. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.